Please open your Bibles to uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'm beginning at the end of verse 5. Close, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. I think I'm going to go ahead and say this now before I forget, because I might just forget. But um, we're going to be talking about humility this morning in the message. And um, I'm not going to get super practical on what pride and what humility looks like. So I did, over years ago, I came across a really useful article. It's a PDF online, and I linked it to the GCF blog. So if you guys are looking to do a little bit uh, more research and study, it's good for personal Bible study, just personal development, spiritual renewal. You can use it in community groups, whatever. It's called The 50 Fruits of Pride, and again, the link to it is on the GCF blog. So please go ahead and visit that and take a look at that. It's really super helpful, and it's very practical in nature, extremely practical. It tells you exactly how it manifests itself in, in life and how you can treat it and what biblical responses are um, as opposed to it. So that's one um, resource that I want to commend to you. And then, of course, there's another book that I consulted called Humility by Andrew Murray, and it's just an excellent book. I've read it, I think, a couple of times, and um, it's, just, it's very good. So I want to commend that to you as well. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we can get to work. Father God, we come before you this morning. We just ask, Lord God, for your blessing on your word and the preaching of your word. And I, I pray, Lord God, that you, would, that you would grant us the resolve as your people to pursue humility and that we would prioritize that perhaps as high as it can go. Lord, I pray that as your disciples, you would help us to see that the distinguishing mark of your people is that we are humble, humble servants of the Almighty God. So I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be convinced this morning that humility truly is worth pursuing and that it should be very high on our priority list. And I just pray, Lord, that you would bless this word, you would speak to us, that you would encourage us, and that you would confront us in your proper way. And we pray you would be exalted in all things. And we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So last night I was talking with the children, having a little family devotional time around the dinner table, and I asked the kids what, if they knew what humility was. And Ben responded, yes. Um, he suggested that it was when you take a balloon and you open it up, and you suck the, 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 uh, the contents of the balloon inside so that you talk funny. And, um, and once Elise put together what he was talking about, she corrected him and said, that's helium. So Ben was thinking of helium, not humility. I guess there is a, a similarity in that they both start with the letter H, and they have an L in the word. Um, but other than that, there's not a whole lot of uh, similarity there. We're going to talk about humility this morning, not helium, just so you guys are assured of that. And there's all kinds of fun you can have with the topic of humility, isn't there? Uh, lots of Christians joke about how humble they are and so on and so forth, and of course that's paradoxical or whatever, it's self-defeating, because obviously if you gloat in your humility, you're not humble. 
And I even thought about, how does one come to write a book on humility, as I was reading Andrew Murray's book on humility? How does one come to write a book? Everything else out there is so lousy, I just have to step in and say something worth saying, because I'm so humble. Um, I have the definitive word on that. Obviously, that's not the approach, but it feels a little bit like that when I'm preaching a sermon on humility, as if I have something great to say to you. So I'm a little bit like a mailman here who's just delivering the mail. Um, I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. And I'm just going to try to do my best to talk about what the Bible says about humility and let God's Word just fall on us as a people and uh, let Him do His work in my life and in all of us. All right? So that's the way that I would just want to approach this. I'm not saying I'm really humble. Many of you are more humble than I am. And, um, and I say that with all seriousness. In some ways, I'm the last person in the world who should be standing up here giving a sermon on humility. But God's word is God's word. Let it speak to his people. And I pray my real intention for the sermon this morning, my desire for this sermon, if it has its intended effect, is that it would convince you that humility should be really high priority for us for you as individuals, and for us as a church. All right, so I want to convince you that that should be a high priority and that you should pursue it. That you should intentionally pursue humility. And there's so many things in your world, and there's so many things in life that you can prioritize. There's so many jobs that you have. There's so many tasks that you have to attend to. So many responsibilities. It can get overwhelming to know where to sink your teeth into. And I would say, humility is a good place to sink your teeth into. And I want to convince you this morning that that's a good place for us to sink our teeth into as a church, and for you as an individual. So that's what I aim to do this morning. We're going to look at verses 5b through 7, even though we kind of read that big chunk. That gives you a little bit of context, but we're going to focus on 5b through 7. Let me read it again. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility all of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So let's break this down a little bit. Peter's bringing this up in the context of the church where he's looking at elders and he's calling them to a specific task of shepherding the flock among them. And then he's also saying to the flock, to the sheep, submit to your elders. All right, so that's the context that Peter brings up this whole issue of pride and humility in. And interestingly, notice the way that Peter talks about humility. And notice the way that he talks about pride. He doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about this is what pride looks like, and this is the effects of pride, and this is what humility looks like, and this are the effects of humility. He does a a tiny bit. But really, he appeals to how God feels about pride and humility as the basis for why we should pursue it. You should run away from pride, and you should run towards humility. Why? Because this is how God feels about it, right? So how does God feel about it? Let's start with pride. He opposes it. God opposes the pride, the proud. He opposes pride. He sees that pride is the enemy of God. You could go so far as to say that God hates pride. He despises it. God is very much against pride and the proud person. He's not for the proud person. He is against it. He is against the proud person, him or her. I don't want to go too far in stating this, but he very much dislikes it. As I thought about this, I do a lot of hiking up north. I've come across being in rivers with cliffs and so on and so forth. Every once in a while, I'll be, my sense of smell will be attacked with a horrendous stench. I'll turn around one time in particular. There was a rotting carcass of an animal that had fallen down a cliff. That's how pride smells in the nostrils of God. Why? Why is he so against pride? What is it? Let me explain. Pride is rooted in the fall of mankind. To really understand pride, you have to go all the way back to where sin enters the world. Adam and Eve were created in God's image. They were put in God's place to live under God's rule. 
And Satan comes to them with a little bit of an offer. And the offer is, hey, you know what? You don't actually have to live under God's rule. You can do things the way you want to do them. You can make your decisions about what is right and what is wrong. You don't have to live under God. You can be a God yourself, you see. And you see, Adam and Eve were deceived. First step, deceived. Pride is rooted in deception. If you are a prideful person, you are a deceived person. And then step number two was they were carried away by the lust of their flesh, by desire to be like God when they weren't created for that position. They realized that autonomy from God, not being underneath God, but being off to the side, being free to make their own decisions and call their own shots, that was desirable to them. And now they are no longer underneath God's command, but they are autonomous from God. They have drifted away. And they have sought their own understanding of what reality is, what is right, what is wrong. They've placed themselves in a place of autonomy away from God. This is pride. And this is, I think, the defining act of pride in which the whole human race was perpetuated, you see. It means every single person on the face of the planet is prone and inclined to this kind of behavior and thinking. I want my autonomy from God. I don't want somebody to tell me what to do and how to act and what's right and what's wrong. I'll call my own shots. Thank you very much. I'm going to live for my desires. The prideful person ultimately is governed by their own desires. And it's rooted in deception. And it accounts and it equates to disobedience. Claiming autonomy from God and seeking their will above the will of God is pride, it is sin. Here's a quote from Andrew Murray. I'm going to be quoting from him a little bit this morning. He says, Lack of love, indifference of people's needs or feelings, uh, needs or feelings, or the weaknesses of others, the sharp and hasty judgments, the manifestations of temper and irritation, the bitterness and estrangement, all have their root in pride. All wars of bloodshed among the nations, all selfishness and suffering, all ambitions and jealousies, all broken hearts and embittered lives with all the daily unhappiness are a result of the same wicked pride. Claiming autonomy from God, getting out from underneath His rule, is ultimately self-seeking, and it is the foundation of all of our misery. You might think that's overstated. I commend this to you. Pride is at the root of all of your misery. It is the marquee need for your redemption in Christ. This is how nasty, this is how terrible, this is how insidious pride actually is, and Really, apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we can't get away from it. So I'll say a little bit more about that in just a little bit. Let's turn to the other side of the coin now and talk about humility. And Andrew Murray, again, he's very helpful here. I'm going to quote something. God is opposed to the proud, but what does he do for the humble? He gives grace to the humble. He's in favor of the one who is humble. When God created the universe, this is Andrew Murray, it was with the one object of making man the partaker of his perfection and blessedness and of showing in it the glory of his love, his wisdom, and his power. God wished to reveal himself in and through created beings by communicating to them as much of his own goodness and glory as they were capable of receiving. Man need only look back to the origin of existence and he will acknowledge that he owes everything to God. 
Man's chief care, his highest virtue, and his only happiness, now and through all eternity, is to present himself as an empty vessel in which God can dwell and manifest his power and goodness. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty and the highest virtue of man. It is the root of every virtue. Just as pride is the foundation and the root of every misery, humility is the root of every happiness. It seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? To make yourself low rather than to exalt yourself and seek what you want. They have very reverse effects. But here are some points that I want to point out from what Andrew Murray is saying here. Humility isn't just necessary because pride entered the world. Humility was the way God intended the created order to function. You see, humility really shouldn't even be in our vocabulary if sin didn't enter the world. It would just be the way things are. Man would take their place and God would have his place. There would be no need to talk about humility because humility would be just reflecting the created order. I'm just man, I live for God. I'm empty, God fills me. That's what humility is. God doesn't just arbitrarily come and flip a coin and say, oh, heads, looks like I'm against pride, and tails, I'll be in favor of humility. There are reasons why he is against pride. And there's reasons why he is in favor of humility. because he created it that way. Humility captures the way God created the world to function and his relationship with man. That's right. Pride, the reason why God is so against pride is because it reverses the order in which God created man to function. It reverses it. Instead of God being up here and man being down here and God filling man, pride reverses it so that man is now up here, he's autonomous from God, and they're in competition now. It's like this. Think of it this way. What if your five-year-old, let's say you have a five-year-old, he comes and sits you down and says, you know, Dad, I've been thinking, it's time to have a talk. This household would run a whole lot better if you just put me in charge and you did exactly what I said. All right? So Mountain Dew before bed, ice cream for dinner, we got it going. Okay, what's that going to do to the relationship? What will that do to the relationship between father and child, mother and child, parent and child? What will that do? I'll tell you what it will do. It will put you guys at a collision course of opposition. Because the way that it's created to function is that parents have authority, children's, children are to submit to their parents. They take up. And when, so long as they are insisting on the fact that they want to now rule and dominate, there's no relationship that can be had. There's only opposition now. I can't be in favor of you, son, if this is the way that you're going to act. I have to be opposed to you. It's just natural. I must be in opposition to you. Why? Because I'm called to lead. I'm called to have authority in this household. And that's the way that it works, I think, with pride and humility. This is why God is against the proud. This is why he must be against the proud. And here's another thing that's true about this as well. God isn't just against the proud. The proud are also against God. It is true that God is opposed to the proud. Yes, and we read that in Scripture. But the reverse is true as well. The proud are in opposition to God. Do you know why the proud are in opposition to God? Because the only posture that you can have as a human being is in submission to God. And as long as you are claiming autonomy from God, saying, I'm going to do things the way that I want to do them, you are declaring war on God. And there's no choice in the matter. There's only one way this can work. You either are humble and you recognize your position before me, or I'm sorry, but you are opposed to me and I'm opposed to you. That's the only way this can happen. So that is why God has opposed the proud. And this is why he gives grace to the humble. It's rooted in the created order. And this is why we need redemption, brothers and sisters. And this is where Christ fits in. This is where Jesus comes into the picture. 
And this is wonderful. You see, Adam means mankind. He's a representative of the human race. And the human race is now perpetuated and cultivated in this prideful act. If you want to understand the Bible, here, let me give you a crash course on understanding the whole entirety of the Bible. There's two men. Two men. There's the first Adam and there's the second Adam. The first Adam acted on behalf of the whole human race. The second Adam, Jesus, acted on behalf of his people who are loving him and trusting him. The first Adam was a mere man who was not content to be a man. He wanted to be God. He reversed the order. The second Adam comes in as God who is content to be a mere man. And he also reverses the order back to the way that it was supposed to be in the first place. And how did he do that? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself in the likeness of man, and he took on the form of a servant. He humbled, humbled. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The first man, Adam, or the first Adam, reversed the created order in an act of pride. The second Adam reversed the created order back to its original state and blessed state by an act of humility. Isn't that awesome? And therefore, if you are in Christ, you are saved by an act of humility. And humility should be, brothers and sisters, church of Jesus Christ, humility should be the defining and distinguishing characteristic of the one who has faith in Christ. And this is why Christianity teaches that humility actually is the path to true greatness, you see. Because it keeps man in his rightful position of lowliness under the Almighty God so that God can fill him up and display his power and love through him and to the world. There is no greater sense of satisfaction that a human being can get. And I'll tell you another thing, and there's a thousand things that could be said about this, but here's one practical outworking of why humility actually is a really blessed thing. One misconception is that humility is um, you're a doormat and you just let people take advantage of you. That's not true. You can be humble, you can be confident, you can be steady, you can be strong as a humble person. And one of the things that humility truly saves you from is all kinds of insecurities that you are now seeking on your own as you have left the care of God your Father. The humble person recognizes that life consists of having a relationship with God and that true joy and true blessedness comes from knowing his love and making his love known to the world. You can do that as a humble person. And the prideful person is now subject to all kinds of insecurities, and you name it, the list will go on and on and on. Things that they are trying to manipulate and coerce and compensate for because they are acting in pride, and they're not getting their ballast from their relationship with God. To be Christian is to be humble because it means Jesus took your place and fulfilled your original destiny through his perfect humility. So Peter says to believers, clothe, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. God is in favor of it. It was your original destiny. It was your original purpose for being in existence. And now it is the distinguishing feature of you, a disciple of Christ, because it's the distinguishing feature of your Savior. Be humble. Okay, so I'm going to say a couple of things about humility in addition to what Peter says here. Um, Not in addition to. I'm going to flesh out a couple of things here of humility that Peter teaches us. Number one, you are to humble yourselves. You're called to humble yourselves. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Humility is God's work in that it is modeled through the person and the work of Jesus Christ that it's empowered in the believer by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells, and it is commanded by God the Father. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, you are called to humble yourselves. It's your job. It's your responsibility to humble yourselves. This is significant. 
It means that you can prioritize and pursue humility and actually grow in it. Because it's your job. As opposed to what? As opposed to God's job? You see, a lot of, I think, Christians would agree that humility is worth pursuing, or at least humility is worth growing in, that it is a virtue that should mark us, and that it should be a high priority. But we kind of take a passive approach to it, do we not? If it happens, it happens, and we kind of view it as God is the one who humbles us, right? God is the one who is responsible for my humility, and the reality is no. You are responsible for your humility. You, you do it. You humble yourselves. You do it as a person that you are marked by humility and you do it from situation to situation in life. You make a conscious decision. I'm going to humble myself. Many of us are too passive in this, right? Now I want to persuade you because of what Peter is teaching here that you are to humble yourselves. I want to persuade you to prioritize this in your life. And actually pursue it. Prioritize and pursue. Maybe Christians are reluctant to this idea of prioritizing humility is because we think of it as an act of growing in godliness. And if we pursue that, if we strategize for it, if we plan for it, if we prioritize it, then it seems kind of inauthentic. Right? It's inauthentic if I practice humility. If I make it a point to practice it, doesn't that seem inauthentic? Shouldn't it just kind of happen to me? Shouldn't God just have his way with me and it just, I just kind of become more humble? Because if you're being honest with yourself, that's kind of the approach maybe you have with it. I'm not strategically pursuing humility. I'm just kind of expecting that it's going to happen over the course of time. Practice in executing a plan seems fine if we're talking about sports or instruments or the like, right? But we don't tend to think about practicing godliness and the pursuit of godliness in this way. It seems all right to say, I'm going to practice my, or I'm going to get better at my guitar this year. So I'm going to practice my chords for an hour every single day, right? But we typically don't hear people say, I'm going to totally rock the humility this year and I'm going to practice it. But what about this? What if you say, this year I'm going to really try to become more humble. I'm going to prioritize that and I'm going to work at it every single day. When was the last time you heard a Christian, a fellow brother, or yourself talk to yourself that way? When was the last time you said, I'm going to become more humble this year? or whatever it is, and I'm going to work at it. I'm going to practice it. I'm going to take on um, patterns that actually allow me to pursue this. And what I'm urging you guys to do is to consider, to think about it this way. Make humility a priority. I'm going to practice it. I'm going to get better at it. Every single day, I'm going to specifically devote myself to becoming more humble. And that's the reality. There are some differences between getting better at godliness and getting better at an instrument or a sport or whatever it is. But Peter does say, humble yourselves. And he wouldn't say that to us if he, if he knew that it wasn't in our power to do it by the Spirit and that if we, could, if we shouldn't prioritize it. So this is why Peter says, humble yourselves. Okay, second thing I want to say. I want to answer the question, how? How do you humble yourselves? How do you practice this? How do you even begin with this endeavor? And I would say it has to do with your mind. It starts in your brain. It starts in your mind, the way you think about yourself and about reality. How do I humble myself? Humbling yourself happens by exercising your mind in the truth. Peter says, I think throughout the letter, he doesn't say it specifically here, but throughout the letter of 1 Peter, he's constantly calling people to make the connection between the example of Christ and the way it transforms our human relationships. In chapter 3, verse 8, he calls specifically for a humble mind. 
The Apostle Paul, we can go to the larger section of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in Philippians chapter 2, which is probably the pinnacle of humility teaching in the Bible. When he looks at Christ, he says, have this mind among yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now this is significant. He's talking about this mind. What is this mind that he's talking about? He's talking about the mind that Jesus had that didn't count himself or didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 just gets done talking about how you should love one another, that you should look to one another and their interests, not just your own. You should put other people's interests and their needs above your own. This is humility. And this mind was in Jesus. And you have this mind. Right? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's teaching you, have the same humble mind that Jesus had towards your brothers and sisters. And church of Jesus Christ, do you realize this? You have the mind of Christ. It's yours. It belongs to you. You have access to it. So take it up. Take it upon yourselves. Live in it. Get inside of the mind of Christ. Let Christ's mind now infiltrate your mind in the way that you think about reality. Take on the mind of Christ. It belongs to you. You own it. You have it. Jesus has bestowed it upon the church. So therefore, let his mind now shape his people. And as his people are shaped according to his mind, you Clothe yourselves in humility. This is how you robe yourselves in, cl- in humidity, uh, humility, brothers and sisters, is you take on the mind of Christ, the humble one. And you embrace his thinking in the way that he thought for yourself. And this is an individual endeavor for each one of you, but it's also a corporate endeavor as well. Oh, that the church would be humble. <laughs> Do you realize how many issues we would solve if we were humble and clothed with the mind of Christ? Do you realize how our love would be so vibrant and radiant? Do you realize how much a testimony we would be to the world around us if we were able to do that? Let's do that. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about God? How do you think about what your purpose of existence actually is? You see, clothing yourself with humility is a function of the mind. And I want to look at it a different way here too. All right? And this kind of gets to the whole idea that you're called to humble yourselves. All right? There is a possible way for God to bring you uh, humbling circumstances in your life. And I think God does that. I think God brings humbling circumstances into your life. But you can still act in arrogance to, to it. You can harden your heart. You can resist him. Think about it this way. Isn't humility really the only disposition that every single human being on the face of the planet should actually have? If you had the right mind, if you thought about yourself accurately, if you thought about yourself well, if you thought about reality around you appropriately, the only place that you would be left is humility. Think about it. Think about the fact that, think about how fragile you are as a human being. Do you realize how fragile you are as a human being? Do you realize how many needs you have as a human being? You see, the prideful person forgets that they are one of six billion people on the face of the planet right now. They forget, it's easy to forget that they are one of however many hundreds of billions of people that have ever lived. You see, if you give your mind to thinking about these things, you will come away with the realization, I should be humble. And yet, pride is so shot through, it's easy to reject that. How about this one? Think about the most powerful man on the face of the planet. He still has to turn himself into a sack of sand for six to eight hours a day, every single day, where he becomes utterly helpless and utterly useless. He needs sleep. Isn't that humbling, brothers and sisters? 
When you just think about the reality of who you are and what your needs are and what your limitations are, you have no grounds for being a prideful person. The strongest person might say, well, I only need five hours of sleep every single day. Like, I should be impressed with that? You only need five hours to turn into an utterly useless and totally helpless human being that's just laying there sleeping? That's not impressive. Think about all of the countless billions of things that have to happen every single second of every single day for your life to be the way that it is right now. Think about how utterly dependent you are on so many different aspects of reality right now. Think about the sunshine. It's not sunny outside right now, but think about the warmth that we need when it's cold or the, the cool that we need when it's warm. Think about the sunshine. Think about love. Think about meaning. All of these things that we need Think about clothing. Think about food. Think about sleep. All of these things that we are utterly dependent on. And you know what? We're so dependent on other people that we don't even know. We can't even think. The reality is when you stop to start assessing yourself in relation to what is going on around you and what you need to be who you are and have the life and the existence that you find pleasurable, you are totally dependent on so many things. And the only response for you as a human being is to be humble. You have no grounds or basis for being prideful and arrogant. And this is why it's so unfitting. And this is why God calls you, Peter says, humble yourselves. Take a look around you. Adopt the kind of mind that assesses these things and rightly think about yourself in relation to say, others, to science, to history, and ultimately to God. And you will come to realize that you have no choice but to be humble. That you have no choice but to think of yourself as lowly. And ultimately, we assess ourselves in relation to God. God is our ultimate measuring stick, brothers and sisters, for seeing and rightly assessing who we are. God is the God who doesn't slumber or sleep. He's the everlasting one, the one from everlasting to everlasting. He is the only appropriate measuring stick for truly assessing who you are. When you put your brain to it and employ your thinking process, you have to realize that, you, that the measuring stick is ultimately God and his mightiness. And when we assess ourselves in relation to God and his mightiness, it helps with the clothing of humility. Here's what Andrew Murray said. It is simple, it is, uh, this is about humility. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness, which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make way for God to be all. Man must realize that this is the true nobility. He must consent to be with, with his will, with his mind, and his affections, the form and the vessel in which the life and glory of God are to work and manifest themselves. Then he will see that humility is simply acknowledging the truth of his position. I'm going to read this again. When you employ your mind and you assess yourself in light of God, you will come to see that humility is simply simply acknowledging the truth of your position. That's what it is. When you pursue humility, you come to see plainly that this is just the truth of who I am and this is the truth of my position in this world. Last night we were talking about the centurion and Jesus and we talked about how the centurion put himself here and he put Jesus up here. And Lydia, my daughter, said, well, that's how it is. And it's like, exactly. You're 10 years old. You got it. You know what humility is? It's that. It's coming to the realization in your brain that I really am down here and God's up here. <laughs> that it's just, that's just the way it is. Humility is simply acknowledging the truth of your position as man and yielding to God his place. Listen carefully here. Let us study the character of Christ until our souls are filled with the love and admiration of humility, of his humility. I'm going to read that again. Let us study the character of Christ until our souls are filled with the love and admiration of his humility. Do you love the humility of Christ? 
Are you, do you adore it? Do you praise it? Because until you love the humility of Christ and say, wow, the Almighty God who humbled himself, and you see the beauty of his humility, we can't begin to clothe ourselves in that humility. You must love it. So keep your eyes on it. Focus on it as a people so that you come to love it. And let us believe that when we are broken down under a sense of our pride and realize our inability to cast it out, Jesus Christ himself will give us this grace as a part of his wonderful life within us. That's a great quote. Now let me close by just saying a couple of things about humility and anxiety. Anybody here deal with anxiety? Okay, don't put your hands up because, uh, you know, everybody would be putting their hands up. As human beings, we deal with anxiety. There's two things I want to say about this in relation to anxiety. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. Humility is the only thing that can solve the problem of anxiety. God gives humility as the remedy for anxiety. Or to say it a different way, anxiety is the fruit of pride. If you are marked as an anxious person... And I'm not saying, I want to say this really clearly. It doesn't mean that you can never have anxiety. But if anxiety is kind of your heartbeat day in and day out, underneath that is pride. That's what's driving that. So anxiety is the fruit of pride. Humility is the antidote to anxiety. Now, to use the illustration of the child and parent again, let's say, let's, okay, I'm going to pick on a 10-year-old this time. A 10-year-old has come to realize that maybe there's some things that are unsatisfactory about the home. And they come to you and they say, you know what, I want out. I'm packing my bags, I'm going to run away from home. Has any of you guys ever run, ran away from home when you were kids? You, you might make it to the, like, the corner or maybe you go hide in the, in the basement. And really what you're wanting is mom and dad to come and search for you because you're throwing yourself a pity party, Right? But let's just say a child decides, I don't like the way things are running in this home. I'm running away. How far do you think this child is going to make it before they are flooded with all kinds of things that they never even had to think about before that now are making them anxious? How am I going to come up with food? Well, I never had to think about that at home. How am I going to come up with this and shelter and warmth? And oh, How far will they make it before they after they claim their autonomy from their parents, before they start realizing that there's a whole multitude of things that they now have to think about? And the answer is, not far. And that's how it is with us. This is how pride, when we claim our autonomy from God and we move away from God, this is how pride now opens us up to a whole multitude of things that we never really have to think about that really shouldn't be on our shoulders to bear. You see, when you claim your autonomy from God, you're going to say, I'm going to do things my way. I don't want your rule. I don't want your protection over me. I'm not going to trust in you as a child would his parents. I'm going to take this by the horn. I'm going to take the bull by the horns and do it my way. Now you know what you're doing. You're taking on the problems of the universe, and you are not qualified for that job. Just like a 10-year-old is not qualified to deal with running away from their home. Humility, on the other hand, keeps us God's children and trusting that God is going to watch over us as a father would. The reality is anxiety is the fruit of pride and true humility saves you from all kinds of lifelong anxieties. And second, here's the second thing I want to point out. God is the mighty God who cares. He cares about you. Now, this is why I said what I said before. Having anxieties is inevitable. It's inevitable. You will all have anxieties. I will have anxieties. We will all have anxieties. They will creep up like weeds creep up, but you kill them with the spray of humility. Right? So anxiety is inevitable. It's just part and parcel of living in a broken world. Peter, who was addressing the Asian believers who were displaced from their home, who were dealing with opposition, and actually Peter was getting them ready for more intense opposition that was probably going to come their way. 
So what's natural about the believers who are facing this? They're going to be filled with anxiety, right? Peter knows this. God knows this. He knows that they're going to have anxiety. And he understands their anxiety, and he understands why they would have anxiety. He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith, why were you anxious? Although, I think about Jesus in the boat. Do you ever think about that? Jesus immediately reprimands the disciples. Oh, you of little faith. Didn't you realize I was in the boat with you? I don't know about you, but if I was in a boat, a fishing boat, with uh, you know, 12 other guys, and there was a squall coming over, I would think, I'm, f- I'm freaking out. I'm scared. I'm filled with anxiety. And Jesus just gets up, oh, you of little faith. But here we see, you know what? He understands that you will have anxiety. He understands why you're going to have anxiety, because it's inevitable. And Peter, I think, realizes that they were going to have increasing anxiety as they were the ones who were reviled. And he says, humility is the only way that you can truly entrust your souls to a faithful creator by casting your anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for you. God knows your suffering. He understands why you might be anxious about what you're anxious about. But you know what he says? Come to me with it. Because I care. I'm the mighty God. I'm the one who owns heaven and earth. And the response to your anxiety, the, spon- the, resp- the proper response, and the only way to actually deal with anxiety is to not shoulder it in pride, but humble yourself and take your rightful position and cast that anxiety upon God because he cares. That's utterly amazing, brothers and sisters. It's amazing that an almighty God would, A, call people to come to him in the first place. Isn't that amazing that an almighty God would call people to come to him in the first place? And B, he calls people to come to him in their weakness. Come to me when you're particularly weak. You see, all great people in our culture, right, are unapproachable, aren't they? What if you, what if, what, what if you encountered your friend? They're packing their bags and they're like, I'm going to New York City. I'm going to visit with Donald, Donald Trump. I think that's where he's at. Yeah, I have a few questions about the economy and some business, you know, ideas. So I'm going to go sit down with Donald. Well, what would you say to them? You're crazy. You can't just go and approach Donald Trump. Why? Because he's great. He's mighty. Think about this. The Almighty God says, come to me. And here's another thing. Who are the people that get to be with Donald Trump? Who are the people that get to be around him? I'll tell you who. People that have something to add to him. Great people in our day fill themselves with other people around them who are also great that will bolster themselves. So if you did want to go to visit a great person, you know what you would do? You would deck yourself out. You would prove, I've got it all together. I have something to add to this guy. That's the way you would approach it. And here's what's truly amazing about what God say, says. Come to me in your weaknesses. You don't have to put yourself together to come to me. I will put you together. You come to me because you're not put together. Isn't that amazing? This is grace, brothers and sisters. This is grace. And the more humble you are, the more you realize you are in need of grace the more you realize that, boy, I really don't have it together. And boy, I really need an almighty God who does, who will help me. It's an act of pride, actually, not to want to go to God. Because prideful people don't want to embrace grace. They don't want to admit the fact that I need help. So you must be humble. You have to be humble to cast your anxieties upon God and truly trust in Him. 
You see, a lot of people in our culture, I think, view God the way they view Donald Trump or other great people in our culture. I can't go to God. I've got to put myself together. Right? Let me say this. I'm going to say something to the believer and the unbeliever, and then I'll be done. Believers, the problem of all problems that should rightly cause you anxiety has already been dealt with. Do you realize the problem of all problems that has already been dealt with is your sin and what you will do in approaching a holy God and standing before him in judgment? That's what you should truly be anxious about. But you don't need to be anxious about that because God has dealt with it already in Christ. So for a believer, the, the, that problem has already been dealt with. And if God cares about that problem, that is the problem of all problems, how much more for the other problems that you will face? If God can deal with your sin, if God can deal with your unholiness, by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross, surely he can deal with everything else, can he not? And for the unbeliever, if you are not in Christ, let me tell you what your greatest anxiety is that God both cares about and invites you to come to him for. And that is, your greatest anxiety should be sin and the punishment it rightly deserves. This is the anxiety above all anxieties. And for a believer, God has dealt with it and we have come to him in grace, for his grace, in humility. But if you're an unbeliever, this is the thing that should, should be trumping all other anxieties. How are you going to deal with an almighty God who is holy and you have to account for your sin before him? And the answer is this, go to him with it in humility. Admit your sin and admit your need for Jesus Christ. He sent his son, which proves he cares. All you need to do is humble yourselves. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask that you would take this word now and you would do with it according to your good pleasure. Thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross. Help us to be humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.